All right, Hebrews 10, I want you to look at uh, Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 11. What we're talking about this morning is God's big story that applies to your life, your heart. God's big story that applies to your heart. I believe it's kind of a standard principle in life, at least it has been in my experience, that big things that are happening on a large scale usually find their way immediately in our lives. And what I mean by that is big picture things that are happening, even on a national level, will impact your life personally. Like when oil is up or down in plenty or, or we can't find any, it impacts what? The gas price that we pay at the pump. I mean, these are normal realities when there is high investment in military or high support for first responders. There seems to be more peace and more security, more homeland security, but more personal security, even in how we are involved in our day-to-day society. When the fires are blazing in, in Willow or the Valley or down in Kenai or in Anchorage, the air quality is not good, right? And that impacts for you who are asthmatic, uh, you're breathing and it's harder to breathe or it impacted perhaps your camping schedule. I mean, these are immediate impacts that happen. Larger things impact the smaller. The macro impacts the micro. There's a lot of things like that. Healthcare is like that. Healthcare on a broad scale, on a national level, uh, can impact your insurance and what providers you have, what doctors in network or out of network, what medicines you can afford, you know, what's legal, what's illegal. All those things are dynamics that are real. This past Wednesday, I had the privilege and honor of uh, preaching in GCS chapels, the junior high and high school one. The junior high one stands out to me, though, because I try to preach shorter for the junior hires just to keep attention, you know, and all of that. And I went about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes on the will of God, piggybacking on last week's message. I just tried to apply it to them. And I finished and I had apparently five or 10 minutes to spare. So Mike Weber, Pastor Mike Weber, raises his hand, comes forward and just sort of says, you know, let's just open it up for an impromptu Q&A for for Jeff. Are you okay with that, Jeff? And I'm like, well, sure. You know, this would be great. And I thought, you know, it'll be fine. 25 hands just shoot up immediately. And suddenly I'm in an ordination council. I kid you not. The question that was asked, I'm not joking around. The question that was asked first, if God is sovereign over all things, why didn't he stop sin from entering into the world in the first place? Okay, great. Uh, Good question. Theodicy, that's what theologians call that question, the problem of evil. And then one of the other questions that was along the same lines, I'd never really heard it phrased this way. When Satan entered into the garden, having sinned, didn't sin at that point enter our world at that point, not Adam and Eve's sin, but sin was already there. How do you explain that? Okay, yeah, I see that hand. Thank you, you know. And I'm, I'm explaining things in terms of God's sovereign will and God being God and, and, and sovereign over all things, but perfectly holy and sin can't come from God, but he can allow for things according to his will for his glory. It was part of his predetermined plan for the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to apply to this for his own redemption story. But it was all part of how all of his divine attributes would be on display and in glory through this process. And really we can't fully understand 
You know, it's, it's kind of like that. Well, after I was done sweating out the Q&A, a, a leader from GCS came up to me and just sort of pastorally said to me, listen, these questions were heartfelt and there were issues beneath the issues with those questions. And one girl had just lost a parent recently and one person was going through this and that. And so don't underestimate the value of answering a big question to try to answer a heart and a life. So again, the big story is trying to solve everyone's little story. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's giving a big story, a big redemption story to try to solve the hearts and the dilemmas and the pains of life that these early Christians were going through. And so this is all applicable even for us. The Hebrews shepherd here, the author of Hebrews is taking us through panels of a tapestry, as one person put it, different vignettes, different scenes that when woven together, give us the big story of redemption that applies to our hearts today. So four redemption scenes, this is what we're going to march through in these verses. And then one application, that's the outline, four redemption scenes, one application And let's see how this ties together. The first scene is standing priests, standing priests, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, what the author is doing here is he's comparing and contrasting. He's going to contrast the standing busy priests to the one high priest. But the standing busy priests, they were very busy. They were doing a work that could never be fully accomplished. And that was their job. Deuteronomy 10.8 says that at the time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord had sent them to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless his name. Deuteronomy 18.5, same thing. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes, the Levites, to stand and minister in the name of the Lord. It's a priestly treadmill, as one person put it. 20 tours of duty where hundreds of priests, really thousands, would take turns at the altar. In Numbers 28, it explains this as well. The two lambs, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day would be offered as a regular offering. Verse 4 of Numbers 28, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So it was just ongoing, Exodus 29, 38. Two lambs a year, day by day, regularly. So there was no lack of priests, But there was a lack in terms of effectiveness. This ceremonial act that God had ordained was now being shown to be obsolete in the cross. It wasn't effective to minister all the way to the person's conscience. It was external and it was active, but it was really no comparison in terms of the one priest who offered himself perfectly and permanently And that was effective. So you have thousands compared to one. And notice there's no seat in the tabernacle or the temple. They're standing. They're called to stand daily. They were never meant to sit down. The work was never done, never could be done. It was the ultimate stopgap 
measure. It was ultimately at this point, after the cross, a false religion of ceremonialism, trying to make things right, a busyness that was ineffective that could not save. All right, here's the second panel or the second part of the redemption story. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The second panel, again, working in comparison and contrast, he's showing the true Christ compared to the priestly treadmill. He's saying that this repeated effort is no comparison to the single sacrifice. The single sacrifice was offered once with benefits that are ongoing and forever for all of eternity. Christ sat down. What does it mean that he sat down? It reminds me a little bit of the creation account where on the seventh day, the Lord rested. This great redemptive work had taken place and it was done. And so Jesus could sit compared to priests that are running on the treadmill. Jesus one offering, one perfect sacrifice, permanent, is seated, is seated. He's absolutely done with this work. Christ accomplished all that sin required. D.A. Carson said that. Now he's at the right hand of the Father, seated on the throne. And this position of Christ being seated is called the session, just like in the government where They go into session to be seated, to conduct business for our country on our behalf, seated there, anticipating conducting business. Jesus is seated on the throne in absolute sovereign strength. It's a picture of power and a picture of his rule. Ephesians 1 applies this powerful scene to the Christian life. Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places. The word power is used about four or five times in this context with different words. Talking about the power of God in our own lives is the same power that raised Jesus and positioned Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The ascension and then his seated position. Hebrews 1.3, same thing. Talking about the power of God, the power of Christ. He's the radiance of the of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making perfection for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8, 1, same thing. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. One of the author's favorite references is found here in these verses uh, that directly speak to Christ being on the throne. It's Psalm 110.1. It speaks to our next vision or our next point in the tapestry, which is he is a vindicated monarch. So Christ is seated. It shows that he's vindicated because sin and death has been put down, but he's a monarch. He's a ruling seated king. Look at this in the text. 
says, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So there's this, there's this dominant vision of Christ who's at the right hand of the Father. And he's done it. He's completed his sacrifice. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. Delivered. The priestly treadmill is over. That has stopped. The sacrifice on your behalf is secure. But then there's this anticipation where Christ as this seated monarch, this vindicated, powerful ruler is going to do something. He's going to finish off his enemies. No enemy will be able to stop him for what has been set in motion. It's vindication over sin and death. Christ wasn't simply someone who modeled a good life. He wasn't just sort of a a do-gooder here. He died a martyr's heroic death. He was raised. He's now in heaven with friends. It's more than that. Christ's life is incomplete without death, without resurrection, and without return and glory. There's more that's going to happen in this redemption story. Number three, not only do you have standing priest, he's a seated high priest. Number three, he's a vindicated monarch. He's seated and verse 13 says he's waiting. He's waiting from that time. What does that mean? It means the suffering servant is a sovereign king. The suffering lamb that was slaughtered is a strong lion and he's poised to return. The kingdom of God is sitting in a suspended state. It's now he's seated on the throne, but then there's consummation to come. There's the now and the not yet. And we live in that tension today. Is Christ king now? Yes, he's sovereign over everything. Is he king of your heart today? Yes, he's sovereign over your life. He's the king of your life if you're his. But at the same time, there's a consummation point Philippians speaks of where every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue, even the enemies, will confess, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are Lord. This is consummation. That's what this is speaking to, the final vindication in the end. It's redemption over every enemy. Everything Christ died to accomplish will be accomplished. No enemy can hinder his work. At the cross, Christ dealt a death blow. Of all the enemies, the cross conquered the power of death and the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Christ triumphed over fall the fallen angels, Colossians 2.14 and 15. Satan's still active, right? The demons are still tempting, right? They're still out there, but they're already conquered. They're defeated enemies. Christ disarmed and triumphed over all rulers and authorities of all ages, Colossians 2.15. All enemies will be at his footstool and will acknowledge his lordship bowing to his feet, Philippians 2.10. Someone said the atonement was utterly complete, the father was utterly satisfied, and all the enemies will fall utterly before the reigning Christ in heaven. Now, here's an illustration to wrap this all up. It's a World War II illustration, just to touch on it. Scholars use this in the already not yet kingdom sense. In terms of World War II, Jesus' death and resurrection are D-Day. That's D-Day. That's the beaches being stormed at Normandy. It was a decisive blow that meant we were going to win the war. Represents the decisive victory of Christ 
the Christ of God, but still there's a final mopping up operation that has not yet occurred. That's the day that's not yet here, but it's most certainly coming. This is called the session of Christ. What I mentioned before, the the assembly seats that are represented in our Congress, they speak of a session. Well, Christ is in session. It's like Christ's birth, death, resurrection, and Pentecost and return. This is a point and time in redemptive history that we are in right now. Christ himself predicted it when he was confronting the Pharisees in Mark 12, 36. He said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here in that phrase, Jesus was, when he was here on earth, predicting his own future. And he was declaring, God said to David's Lord, and Jesus was speaking of himself. He's saying, God said to David's Lord, who, by the way, was Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So what does this mean for us? We live in a democracy. We enjoy that. We enjoy the American experiment. We enjoy our vote. We enjoy our freedom. People have fought and died for this. And I understand that, and I respect that, and I enjoy the freedom of living here. There's no place in the world I'd rather live than here. At the same time, we are citizens of a a higher king and a higher kingdom. And we live in Christ's rule over our lives. We are completely loyal and in full allegiance to the Lord's rule now. The late R.C. Sproul, it's hard for me to even think that. I kept thinking, R.C. Sproul really did die. He's gone. But he wrote something that was really good. And I I read it and I put it in here and then researched it. And I thought, oh yeah, R.C. Sproul himself did this. He made this illustration. I love it. It kind of puts this in place, um, brings it to life. He loved legends and he loved the legend of Robin Hood. He said, Robin Hood tells of, the legend of Robin Hood tells of King Richard, the Lionheart, who leaves England to fight in the Crusades, leaving his brother, Prince George, in charge of the realm. John mismanages the kingdom for his own benefit, forcing Robin and others to become outlaws. Robin and his compatriots, known as his merry men, live in Sherwood Forest, evading John and his henchmen, the Sheriff of Nottingham. The merry men are known for their joy, but they are known especially for their loyalty. They want to protect the realm until their king comes home. Richard returns to England, but this time in the guise of a monk, so he's disguised. At an inn, he hears of talk about Robin Hood and his opposition to Prince John. So he purposefully travels through Sherwood Forest. Suddenly, Robin and his men waylay Richard and his fellow travelers and try to relieve the king of his purse. Here's the key moment. The king asks Robin, why are you doing this? And Robin replies, because of my allegiance to my king. Then Richard pulls off the monk's garments and displays the lion and the cross on his chest. Robin recognizes him and falls on his knees saying, my liege. In the end, Richard knights Robin because of his faithfulness during the absence of the king. Listen, our king is seated at the right hand of the father. And though we're in the world and a world that really is following after and loyal to another king, a lowercase g-o-d, 
the God of this age, right? The prince of the power of the air. Everybody's going after Satan's systems. Everybody's going after Satan's treats that are just laid out for people. Satan's temptations. They're loyal to him. People say they're loyal to a lot of things, but ultimately as unbelievers, people are loyal to Satan. We're loyal to God. We're loyal to Christ. We are rebels passing through in this world. We're loyal in terms of our our allegiance and submission to our governing authorities, but we're rebels flying in the face of satanic temptations. We're saying no. We're saying that does not satisfy, that will not please us. And we're trying to gather people, kind of like the merry men who want to sing songs of joy to the Lord and a higher king who's coming back for us. That's what this means. That's what this is speaking to. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the consummation. You should read about it later on, verses 24 through 28. Well, we have standing priests. We have a seated high priest. We have a vindicated monarch. And then fourthly, we have sanctified people. And I would say this verse is also part of the big picture. This is another panel in the tapestry. It's our final one in terms of the redemption story. This is the application of the cross for the church. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 12, you see that same reference, a single sacrifice for sins, a single offering. He has perfected. Perfection here, being perfected means to be saved. It means means to be made complete. And we're talking big picture here because we're talking about the church being completed or made pure by God forever. For all time, that's what it says, those who are being sanctified. Some interesting language here when you tie together those who are being perfected or those whom he has perfected are the ones who are being sanctified. How do we tie this together? Well, this is tying together the macro of what God has done to the micro of our own lives. A single offering, a single sacrifice has done a completing work that is done forever. What does that mean? Does that mean you're never going to sin anymore if you've been perfected? No. Does it mean you're never going to get sick? How many of you are sick this morning? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, does it mean you're never going to make an error on uh, you know, doing anything? Are you children? You're never going to make an error on your math quiz? No. We live in a fallen world. We're still fighting our flesh. We're still growing in grace. But there is a difference in your life. So the question is, how do you know if you're one of these who, who's been perfected? Where this great story applies to you personally, this macro means something to your heart today. The macro needs to feed your heart and your life. How do you know you're perfected? Well, if you look at, again, the end of the verse, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That phrase, those who are being sanctified, is a is right in the concept of the assurance of salvation. That's what we're talking about. How do you know you're saved? You know that you're saved if you're being sanctified. You know that it's happened if you're growing. If you're not growing, and I'm not talking about the perfection of your life, I'm talking about if you're growing in your direction towards Jesus Christ, then you can be confident that you are a Christian. God grows the ones he's saved. That's the perseverance of the saints. 
He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I don't feel like I've been growing in a while. Well, if you believe you're a Christian and you've seen some fruit in your life, even small bits of fruit, you might be amazed that you actually are growing more than you think you are. You're different than you were maybe a year ago. Just ask your spouse, (laughs) ask a good friend and say, am I any different? Have I grown at all? Probably they'll say, you know what? There were things in your life that were here at this point that are now not in your life. And so it goes. Second Corinthians 3.16 says we're growing from one stage of glory to the next. Growth doesn't look like this on a chart. It, it's, it's, if there was sort of a graph chart, a you know, Y and X chart, it doesn't go like this. Growth looks more like this, right? It looks like this. We just grow along. So we don't grow faint-hearted with a verse like this. Actually, you should see in verse 14 something that's amazing. Do you know that in Leviticus, over and over again, there's too many cross-references to list. In Leviticus, over and over again, it says, be holy for I am holy. Who's ever been shocked by that and thought, oh man, I'd love to fulfill that. And I hope I'm in, you know, the club with a verse like that, but I know my own life. Jesus repeated it in Matthew 5, I think it's verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First Peter, same thing. Be holy as I am holy. How do you, how do you put this in your life? First Peter 1.15. Remember Matthew 5.20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we fulfill this? Well, guess what? Christ fulfilled it for you. That amazing? He made you holy. He has made you perfect. Say, how does that work? We're going to open this up. It'll flesh out even more in the next few verses. But you're, you're in the fulfillment of this because you're growing. You know that you've been made holy because you're growing and he's making you holy. There's a positional justification, a positional sanctification where you are set, sealed by the Holy Spirit, covered by the righteousness of Christ, born again from the inside, washed in his blood. Nothing can change that. And then at the same time, that initiates this course of sanctification that vindicates that he started this work that's completed, but he's working it out in your sanctification and will ultimately glorify you and bring you to full completion in glory. That's what theologians call final salvation, where you've fought the good fight, finished the race, you've kept the faith, you're, you're pursuing Christ all the way to the finish line into glory. He's already... He's already positionally washed you and made you perfect, but we still are fighting our flesh in our humanness until glory. And then we go in under the blood of Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does this, what does this practically look like? I, I really wanted to, as a sermon, go through the redemption story and get your hearts up into the macro of what God has done on your behalf. And then I want this to apply. And the scripture takes it into our hearts in verses 15 through 18. You know, I don't want to miss a quote, though. There is a quote from John Piper on verse 14 that I don't want to miss. Because he, he really 
loves to tie this theology of our position and our practical sanctification together. He says, those who are being sanctified means you have a shocking combination where people who have been perfected are the ones who are being sanctified. I didn't want to leave that out. I just think that's really important. All right, let's go on to verse 15. What this looks like, the application The application to the fact that we've been positionally sanctified and we're growing because of the redemption story all comes down to our final point, which is your heart changes. This is the micro. Your heart changes. You're different. And it's important to come to church and read about how we're different to reengage this difference because this difference is everything in our lives. It's everything. Look at verse 15. Says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. All right, first of all, I understand this is another favorite verse section of the author of Hebrews. This is Jeremiah 31. This is where Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 33, and then 34 is talking about the new covenant. Here in particular in the New Testament, it says the Holy Spirit is saying this. This is really the Holy Spirit through Jeremiah saying this hundreds and hundreds of years before this was rewritten and quoted by the author of Hebrews. So you say, is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes. The Holy Spirit, it says, rushed, rushed upon prophets all through the Old Testament. Isaiah, it explicitly says it. It doesn't say it happened to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, but the author of Hebrews is telling us that the Holy Spirit was moving in the prophet's mouth to predict the new covenant, the gospel in the Old Testament. In 2 Peter 1, 21, it says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit put these words in Jeremiah's mouth, speaking about how the Holy Spirit engages your heart individually as a believer. What does that look like? The Holy Spirit is bearing witness, verse 15, it says. That's the word marture, where we get the word martyr. It's the idea of the Holy Spirit is a massive witness in your heart that this is all real. You say, how do I know that scripture is true? Because of science, because of archaeology, because of textual criticism, because of the papyrus and how early they were to the original papyri as they were written. I mean, all those evidences are great to have and to know about. But really, the supreme and superior evidence that the scripture is truth, that it is true, is the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts as we read the scripture. And as the scripture says it is true, we believe it is true. It's called the self-attestation of scripture. The word of God says of itself that it is, that it is inspired and inerrant. Psalm 119, 105 says, the sum of thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And so we know it's true. We believe the words of Jesus Christ because the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives tells us it's true. So what's the experience? The experience is that the law of Christ is now written on our hearts. You say, that's 
massive rewiring for the Old Testament Jew. You need to understand that. An Old Testament Jew that had come into the New Covenant as an early Christian who was Jewish needed to know for sure that this is true. He had been ceremonially wired where he's saying, I need to follow these standing priests and make sure my sins are covered. But when the Holy Spirit came into that person's life, that person was saying, no, now I believe and understand and can discern the true meaning of the law. Something's different in my heart now. Say, what does this look like? This new sensitized discernment. It shows obedience to be something that you know in your heart as you read the word of God. Do you remember the Pharisees? They were hardwired in terms of ceremonialism and legalism. They would challenge Jesus and say, you're not obeying the law. You don't keep the letter of the law, Jesus. As you read the the gospels, you see this over and over. Jesus, you can't go over there. You can't do that miracle. You can't make that withered hand whole. It's the Sabbath. What are you thinking? You can't heal that person. I know that person was dead, maybe but that person's come to life, but yeah, but it's the Sabbath. What are you thinking? You're breaking the law. You can't do that, Jesus. Your disciples, look at them. They're a disgrace. They didn't even wash up before they played with that wheat and and ate it and they were hungry. And what what are you thinking? The law says you can't touch those things. You can't eat those things. You can't go in those places. That woman touched the hem of your garment. That, how dare you? She's washing your feet and your hair. That's unclean. This is all wrong. That's what the Pharisees believed in terms of the law. That's what people believe in terms of religion today. That's what we've been freed from in our hearts now by the Holy Spirit. We discern the difference between truth, between error. We, it, we discern the true meaning of the law. The law points us to Christ. We see Christ and we worship him and we follow him. And we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves, which is Deuteronomy law, but it's applied in a New Testament church sense because we love the Lord Jesus with all heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love people self-sacrificially because we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Christ is our guide. We know that hate is murder. We know lust is adultery. We know the true meaning of the law because the Holy Spirit's unlocked that in our hearts. What does this look like even further? Look at verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What does that mean? You know, a lot of people have struggled with this because they think, well, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. This would be another junior high Q&A question. He knows everything. And at the same time, it says he doesn't remember your sins. How can we put this together? How does this compute? Well, the best I can say is this. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He just does not, as one person put it, remember our sins against us. He doesn't remember our sins against us. In some real sense, God 
has thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's buried them in the deepest part of the sea. We are covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's as if we are already seated at the right hand of God in heaven with Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. There's no condemnation against us. We are sealed for the day of redemption. All of this is true. All of it is true. But God is omniscient and I don't, want to guess how God knows and doesn't know how he remembers, but doesn't remember. But I can say this, he doesn't remember our sins against us. He's not counting our sins against us. He's counted us as righteous. He's not ignorant in heaven, but at the same time, we are his child. I think of it in terms of how, when a child sins against a parent and a parent forgives that child, Love seems to cover and cloud all of whatever happened before. He doesn't count anything against us. And then ultimately, this is sealed up in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's forgiveness. There's no need for any more priestly treadmill that can be un plugged who likes to walk or run on a treadmill anyway right it's over the macro it plays into our experience and i wanted to give some applications this morning just i want to list a few just what does this look like in our lives the big story means something to you it should this big story should be in your mind that jesus conquered sin and death d-day happened And V-Day is coming, right? He is a vindicated, ruling monarch in the already not yet kingdom that we live in. He's king of your life today. That means you can go to work this week and love your friends and love your enemies at work tomorrow. You can do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has told you this big story is true and it's real. And anything that anybody does against you personally will be handled one day by the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. He's got it. You leave it to him. Judgment is his, not yours, right? That's one. Number two, The big story means you can understand self-sacrificial love. The word agape, the word agape means self-sacrificial love. Greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. We understand what it's like to be loved in that way because the Holy Spirit has explained it to our hearts that John 3.16 applies to our hearts. And so in that way, we can self-sacrificially love other people. We have a gas tank that's filled with spiritual power to keep doing this. We know that things that we have that we cling to are temporary, but we have so much more that is eternal. And from that resource, we give. Number three, in terms of your past, and I've reiterated this over Hebrews because the book of Hebrews does this, your sins that you have committed in your past that plague your conscience should be clear from your conscience. You should have a clear conscience. 
you should submit your conscience on the altar of the cross. You should take your sins and literally in your mind, nail them to the cross. They've been nailed there. There's a debt certificate that is over the cross of Christ that says paid in full, right? You are crucified with Christ. You can, on that basis, fight your sins now and should, saying I'm crucified with Christ. I don't sin that way anymore. I shouldn't do that anymore. My sins of the past are gone. I am reconciled with Christ. I'm at peace with God. The peace of God which surpasses our understanding or our comprehension or our logic is what we have in our hearts. We're not rationalizing why we have a clear conscience. We're resting in the cross and that's why we have a clear conscience. You see the difference? It's applying the gospel by faith, the big picture to our hearts. Christ's sacrifice has met the judgment that we deserved. Number four. In terms of your purpose, you have identity. You have a cause and you have a direction. If I were to survey us, I imagine that many of us would say you wrestle with purposelessness. Why am I here? What am I doing? I'm, you know, as one person put it from the South, speaking of Southern gospel, he said, you know, I feel like my life is like, pushing a greased watermelon up a hill, you know, and it just keeps coming back on me. Life is like that. But in Christ, we have a direction. We are in, we are on mission for Christ in your world, in the sphere of influence he's given you, in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your isolation, in your Pauline-like experience, in your Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moments? It's all part of a mission that he's given to you that's purposeful in Alaska, in a place that appears to be very isolated from the world, which is really the crossroads and nexus of our world where people are passing through all of the time. It's a massively influential place where you are having purpose played out in your life. Your identity is in Christ. Your cause is in Christ. Your direction is in Christ. You're a saint who's been made perfect in Christ. And Christ is working on you, perfecting you. He gives us by the Holy Spirit the desire to want to be who he has made us to be, to want to be in this cause, to want to be holy as he is holy. Number five, in terms of your priorities, you should have higher goals. You each have a spiritual gift. You have a way that you can give, whether you can give some financial resources, a little or a lot. You can give time. You can give your talent. You can give your time to the church. You can give your time in the work of the ministry. It's all higher goals where you're investing, not just in programs and not just in classes or community groups per se, but you're targeting people that you invest in. You disciple people, you invest in people, you sacrifice for people. It's more than stuff. Number six, partnerships. And I like this one. There's no greater commonality that you can have with someone other than Christ. We are in 
partnership with each other, in fellowship with each other based on Christ. There's no greater connection that you can have. It was mentioned earlier in equipping hour, how you can have relationships with people that are of a different background, a different ethnicity, a different kind of group, a a whole different culture can invade your world in a relationship setting. And if you know Jesus Christ and you know the same Bible, you can connect in a way that is profound. Don't miss that opportunity to connect in Christ. You have Christ, you have a mission, you have a purpose, and you have a new heart to do all of this with and through Christ.